Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, everyone. It is Thursday, February 16th, 2017, and you're listening to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland, and guess what? There are, once again, many, 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 many things for us to talk about this week. We've got more big news in the rolling national security foreign policy story between President Donald Trump and his administration and his campaign and Russia. We've got, relatedly, a top White House official and a cabinet nominee going down amidst the swirl of stories in the administration and Trump more explicitly than ever identifying the media as his current opponent now that he doesn't have an electoral one uh, to use as a foil. And we've got, in the background, a big conversation coming to a head about the future of the Democratic Party and their party leadership race. So we're going to talk about all that and more this week after just a couple housekeeping notes. First of all, please subscribe and rate the Nerdcast on iTunes. And if you have time, write a written review. And please email us at nerdcast at politico.com if you have questions you'd like answered in a future episode. All right, let's lay out this week's data points. 25, that is the number of days former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn served in his post, the shortest in history by a long shot. Next data point is 77. That was the length in minutes of President Trump's barn burner of a press conference on Thursday that looked to us like an attempt to regain control of the narrative and also fulfill his thirst for blood sport with the press uh, after a week that spiraled out of control. And our final data point, shifting gears a little bit, is 447. That's the number of eligible voters in the upcoming election for chairman of the Democratic National Committee, which has candidates crisscrossing the country ahead of uh, this vote and talking about the future of the party out of power. So if you're not totally overwhelmed by the volume of topics that we have this week, let's dive right into it and figure out just what happened in this, the fourth week of the Donald Trump presidency. All right, let's say hello to everyone. White House correspondent Eli Stokels. Hey, Scott. National political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hey. And here to help us uh, make sense of this week uh, for the first time, our senior foreign affairs correspondent, Michael Crowley. Hi, thanks. This is very exciting. (laughs) All right, let's get right into our first data point. That's the number 25. That's the number of days in Michael Flynn's tenure as national security advisor. Even William Henry Harrison, who fell ill after giving a long inaugural address in the cold and died about a month into his presidency, lasted longer in his role in the White House than Michael Flynn did. It's so, a sick historical burn, Scott. Yeah. Sick. So, Michael, I mean, part of the reason Flynn is out so fast is that the knocks on him have started long before the administration did. So take us through the arc of what happened here culminating in the resignation of the National Security Advisor early this week. Well, Michael Flynn is a guy who seems to have changed. And I think the picture here is a little bigger than Russia. But, you know, to put it very briefly, you know, he's a longtime military intelligence officer with a really distinguished record. And people who served with him in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, thought he was a great tactician, a great terrorist fighter. Uh, But he was pushed out uh, in the Obama administration from the Defense Intelligence Agency 
uh, earlier than he wanted to leave, kind of forced into retirement. And it, it seems like that was kind of a turning point in his life. It, it, it embittered him. And people who knew him before that say that they saw him uh, kind of change. And so there's a Michael Flynn who you saw speaking at the Republican National Convention who was angry, leading a chant of lock her up, uh, uh, and just seemed like a different guy to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I think I'm going to come to the Russia thing, which is what this is really about, but I just want people to keep in mind the larger context is that, you know, I think people really felt like he was not the guy he had been before. He was not operating at the same level. And I think that um, there was you know, a, 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 a consensus or at least a strong uh, current of opinion that he was a little bit in over his head in the national security advisor job with Trump. So I, I think that, you know, you talk to a lot of people in national security circles and they say that the person they worry about most in the Trump administration in terms of competence on national security actually was Mike Flynn. And they felt like he was not a great guy for that job. This is before you get into the Russia stuff. So let me just do that quickly and then we can uh, have some fun with what it all means. Uh, part of what was sort of strange about his you know, months after he was pushed out of the Pentagon is that he was seen, I think, about a year and change later in Moscow at a dinner where he sat at a table with Vladimir Putin wearing a tuxedo. Kind of funny aside, it was not a black tie dinner. He's the only guy there in a tux. So uh, <laughs> it's a sort of a funny image, but uh, Putin's there in a suit. So is everyone else. He's there for the anniversary dinner of RT, which is a Kremlin-funded uh, uh, global news network, sort of like a Russian BBC, but much more aggressively propagandistic uh, than the BBC is. Uh, Flynn gives a speech there for which he apparently uh, was paid uh, and uh, made a bunch of appearances on RT where he talked about U.S.-Russian cooperation and how America and Russia don't have to be adversaries and could work together against uh, Islamic terrorism. And uh, he finds his way into Trump's orbit and becomes a very senior uh, Trump uh, national security advisor during the campaign. Uh, and he and Trump were kind of singing from the same songbook here. We should get along with Russia and we can team up to fight ISIS. Uh, but, you know, it's a little strange because this is a guy who sat at a table with Vladimir Putin. A lot of people in the intelligence committee were, were very disarmed by that, very upset by that, frankly. Uh, uh, and so where, the, where this path leads is that... Um, uh, in December, after the election, but before Trump is sworn in, uh, we now know that he had communications with the Russian ambassador Flynn in did. Washington, Michael Flynn did. So Michael Flynn, who winds up being chosen to be Trump's national security advisor, uh, is, is headed into that job. He has communications with Sir, Sergei Kislyak, who is the Russian ambassador in Washington. Uh, and uh, as people will probably know by now, uh, misrepresented the content of those calls to other people in the administration, including Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who went out on national television and said that the calls did not have anything to do with U.S. sanctions on Russia, uh, uh, which was in response to suspicions at the time that that is precisely what they had discussed, because uh, President Obama levied sanctions on Russia to punish Russian hacking in the American, uh, in the 2016 American election. Uh, and uh, Flynn spoke to the Russian ambassador right around the time that happened. So people specifically said, were you talking about these sanctions? Uh, uh, because actually Vladimir Putin really did not respond to them. He really surprised people. It was out of character. He he essentially said fine um, and invited a bunch of Americans to some Kremlin-hosted Christmas party. It was a weirdly sort of passive response. People said, was this kind of rigged up through Mike Flynn? And uh, Pence said no. Uh, and uh, it has emerged now through leaks from the Intelligence Committee, which intercepted the conversation, that in fact uh, uh, the sanctions did come up uh, in in the phone calls, uh, there's also kind of 
conflicting accounts of how many calls there were or when there were. It just doesn't seem like Flynn was on the level about it. The White House was on the level about it. So to conclude, the White House, uh, uh, Trump fires Flynn, and the White House says that he was um, not straight on this. They had questions about his honesty and sort of oddly said that there had been a series of things, actually, that had given them pause about him. And they never uh, elaborated on what those other episodes were. But I think that goes back to my opening point, which is that I think there were questions about Flynn's competence and really, frankly, whether he was kind of operating at 100 percent. So here we are now. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the fallout is toxic. And we have all kinds of new stories about Russia coming out, which we can talk about. But that's the Flynn arc. Eli and Eliana, I mean, the 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 way that Flynn departed in these various stories explaining it, seemingly a different one from everyone, speaks a lot to to the way the White House is operating right now, right? I mean, the the news broke that Flynn had misled Pence about the content of these conversations with the Russian ambassador long after. President Trump and other members of the White House were told this via the Justice Department and the intelligence community. So, uh, what what does what does that say about the way the the administration is operating? Well, that they're sort of reactive. They're not proactive. They're reactive. They, you know, much of the response at the press conference when Sean Spicer came out the other day and was putting this together for people was about reconstructing a timeline. We don't know if it's true or not, but but trying to get people some sort of believable timeline that would sort of shield them from blame. Okay, Pence knew about it then, but the president knew about it on, you know, this date back in January. And, you know, it begs even more questions about, well, why would you mislead the vice president? What What is the point of that? Who is trying to keep this information for themselves and not share it uh, with a vice president who's already gone on TV and lied. Why would you keep stuff from the president? We've heard reports about, you know, the Wall Street Journal reporting that uh, the NS, uh, you know, the, the NSC and, and people are not, or the CIA rather, is not giving the president all of the best intelligence because of all the leaks and because they're not concerned he has the attention span for it, et cetera, et cetera. They worry about, I mean, you just, you have to ask why all this information, why there are all these information jams inside the West Wing, um, I think is one of the big questions about this. And then the other thing is the reaction is very much about the leaks themselves. That's what upsets Donald Trump. It's not that he lied to even Vice President Pence. It's that, you know, why are these leaks getting out? And this is a problem and there will be consequences. We're going to find the leakers. It's a way to, I mean, it's a glimpse into what matters to, to the administration, but also a way for them to sort of divert attention from some of the questions that are maybe more pertinent to national security. Eliana? Yeah, I think the delay in dismissing Flynn re, uh, raises the question, was it his lie to the vice president or the fact that that, um, that lie was, became public um, that uh, resulted in his firing? But um, to Michael's point about Flynn, how well suited Flynn was to the position, which I do think mattered here. Um, you know, when he left the DIA, he really became um, a fierce advocate for various foreign policy positions. He was um, a, an Iran hawk um, and wrote a book um, out, outlining his view of the world. And I think people don't uh, remember necessarily that often that the National Security Advisor is um, the head of what people refer to as an interagency process that is um, technically supposed to um, collaborate with and get the views of uh, the State Department, the Defense Department, 
um, Department of the Treasury. And so it's it's a managerial position in the sense that, um, you know, in an ideal world, the National Security Advisor would be um, ensuring that departments are working constructively together, soliciting the views of uh, other of Trump's other senior most advisors, and then calling down what the um, decisions are for the president to make and bringing them to him. Um, it's not really an advocacy position. Um, and so I think just temperamentally, Flynn was sort of ill-suited for this role, and it was something a lot of people recognized from the outset. So w- what... Uh, and it, it's, I think it says a lot that the White House put an advocate in, in, in that position yeah. um, in the yeah. first place. That's a really interesting point. So, Michael, yeah. what, what does this say going forward about how is this going to affect U.S. foreign policy? Let's, you know, the politics uh, inside the White House aside, how, how is this going to affect foreign policy going forward? So it, I, I think that that's an unknown uh, right now. It's not clear how much Flynn was shaping Trump's thinking and worldview, uh, shaping formative early policies of the administration. I had to say, I, I, I think that Elian is right that uh, he seems like, you know, he was a polemical guy who had really strong opinions that was sort of crusading in particular about uh, fighting uh, radical Islamic terrorism. But, you know, that's uh, there's a chorus of that kind of thinking in the Trump White House right now. I mean, Steve Bannon, uh, as far as I can tell, is basically in lockstep with Flynn on those uh, key questions. And, you know, Trump himself actually, and I know um, uh, 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 our colleague Michael Cruz, sorry, it took me a second to call it up, did a great story on how Trump, if you go back to uh, like 1987, uh, you know, bought a full page ad in the New York Times laying out his sort of foreign policy vision. And a lot of those principles have held for 30 years. So Trump, I think, you know, he doesn't know a lot about the world. Um, he's not a, like a highly informed guy, to say the least, but he has these kind of guiding principles. So I don't think Flynn's exit, when you, given that like Trump does have these basic principles, you have Steve Bannon with this very firm worldview uh, who has an influential role and now uh, a seat on the National Security Council, which is sort of unprecedented. I think that that uh, vision remains the same. You do have now this kind of turbulent moment, I think, where foreign governments and foreign leaders aren't sure who to talk to. You know, a lot of them, I, I was at a party a couple of weeks not, not ago. Not just foreign governments and foreign leaders, right? members of Congress. Members of Congress. Right. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, everyone. But, you know, all these people invested time in getting to know Mike Flynn. I was at a party at an embassy and, you know, the one of the officials from the government was telling me how pleased he was because his country had gotten more than an hour with Mike Flynn and, you know, more than an hour with the National Security Advisor for our relatively little con- country. And we were so excited. And it's like, you got to start over and who do you talk to now? And so um, I think uh, to, to wrap up the what's significant about that is it's just going to further delay Trump's ability to start acting on the world stage where people are still feeling each other out what does the Trump White House think what's it going to do what are its plans uh, and this disarray is just going to mean it takes him longer to start getting anything done which you know his critics are probably not so unhappy about and it's not just the foreign governments and the ambassadors who don't know who's calling the shots or what's coming out of the White House I mean there are officials at state you know, at Foggy Bottom, who don't yeah, know. Um, I mean, there are right, granted there aren't that many people working there at the moment because they haven't filled out a lot of these positions. But internally, I mean, Rex Tillerson himself hasn't been, wasn't in the Netanyahu meeting. Our reporting tells us that he wasn't even aware that there was going to be the statement coming on the two state, one state, any state. Trump doesn't care. That's a major change in 
you know, U.S. policy, and the Secretary of State wasn't even in the loop on it. That you know, on uh, today, Nikki Haley's at the UN saying, well, "Of course, we still support that policy." And so that's just one example where there are different people speaking for the administration. No one really knows who's in charge. The Secretary of State appears to be out of the loop. Um, you know, Trump at this press conference, I know we're about to talk more about, um, said today, chaos. There's no chaos, right? The only chaos is uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, he said. But, I mean, this is systemic chaos that we're seeing, and it's affecting foreign policy, and it's very muddled, obviously. Eliana, I feel like this all ties in with something you've talked about on the podcast before that, and, and offline as well, that the term, the term the White House doesn't really seem to apply so far. There isn't a, there, there isn't a unified front here there isn't a white house there are there are factions and and different different elements that are all pursuing their own agendas at this point it's it's getting confusing for everyone you know one of the things that i think people tend to forget and some somebody that um a former senior administration official said this to me um is that there's a huge cost to all of these scandals and we seem to be getting another one um every day in that um they take time and energy out of White House staffers and people on Capitol Hill. And right now, there essentially is no National Security Council because nothing is moving there. And so uh, there's an enormous cost to the White House, um, which is that these things um, basically freeze the government for however long they take to get out of um, you know the, the media system or the media spotlight. And I, I think that's one of that. Right now, it looks like it's going to be a persistent feature of the Trump presidency and um, and inhibit his ability to move legislation, um, move forward on, um, you know, initiatives that he cares about. And I think it will be interesting to track how how that develops. And, and part, of, part of the problem is that when something happens, um, when, you know, when a scandal like this erupts, it's not entirely clear um, who's running the show at the White House. And it's not just um, the distraction of the scandal. I mean, you guys, I think, both kind of touched on it, but just to bring it into focus a little more, you know, vacancies, so they're they're still settling on the new national security director, but there are vacancies, for instance, subject I'm really interested in is Russia. There is not a senior director on the National Security Council for Russia right now. Uh, at the State Department, there is not a top official who specifically works on Russia. So what that means is, you know, to the extent that Trump still wants to have some kind of partnership with Vladimir Putin that would change U.S.-Russia relations in some fundamental way, either through a grand bargain or a series of smaller bargains, uh, you don't have the people who can start getting that ready. Like, you can't, I mean, it's going to require staff work. Unless Trump, look, the guy breaks every rule, so maybe he just wants to walk in there totally unprepared and sit down mano a mano with Putin and figure something out, uh, uh, I think a lot of people would think that would be a really bad way to proceed. Um, the, pe- the personnel just aren't there to start coming up with a policy. And the Russians, by the way, are probably going to want a more formal process. So, uh, you know, uh, Trump is likely to see Putin as early as, I think, June. I think there's a G20 summit, and they'll both be there. That'll be their first opportunity to talk. Um, you know, it's not a lot of time to start getting something kind of geared up at the sort of staff level, which sounds boring, but this is how this stuff works. This is how these deals got get done. So substantively, the chaos is a lot of fun for the press to report on and for people to watch the kind of reality show unfold on TV. But but it really does slow down, again, Trump's ability to uh, implement some kind of an, an agenda. And people may be asking many months from now, like, what are you doing? Nothing's happening. 
uh, part of it is because it's taking so long to get the people in place. That's and a, this is precisely when he has the most political capital to move those things. That's yeah. right. And that's actually, that's something we're going to talk about a lot on the domestic side of things in the next segment. Michael, thank you for coming on and My illuminating pleasure. this for yeah, us. Yeah, great fun. Thank you. Let's welcome back in senior reporter Nancy Cook to talk about some of that. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, let's jump into our next data point. That's 77 minutes, and that is the length of time at the uh, Donald Trump press conference that finished just moments before we started reporting here. Uh, he, it he, felt longer than that. It did. He, I mean, he started it off with kind of a, a long anti-media monologue and then took a variety of questions on a variety of topics, and the answers sometimes had something to do with the questions and sometimes not. But Eli... Talk to us about why this press conference happened today at the end of this week when we saw a, as we just talked about, we saw a White House f- official resign. We saw a cabinet nominee uh, pull out, as we'll discuss more, we, you know, and a host of other things. So why, why did this happen? The why is always dangerous territory because some of this stuff defies logical explanation. But um, you're right. I mean, ostensibly, this was a press conference he was calling to announce Uh, the new appointee for a labor secretary. And he did announce that uh, very, you know, right off the bat. And then he read from a list. Easy to miss it. Was easy to miss it. I already forgot his name's Acosta (laughs) or something like the TV. I mean, Jim Acosta got a lot more airtime and attention at this press conference than whichever, you know. Future secretary. Yeah, future secretary Acosta. So like, you know, this was like an afterthought. Here's the business. I'm going to run through this list. He was very, quote, low energy at the beginning. I mean, he's reading from a list. And then you could see his adrenaline pick up over the 77 minutes as he started to spar with the reporters. And yes, the White House has gotten a lot of criticism because they're drowning in negative stories and controversy right now. um, And they haven't answered the question. They've been criticized for, you know, when the president has stood up there with the foreign leader calling on very friendly outlets. And by the end of this, the president was joking about where's a friendly reporter to call on after sparring with the, the reporters from the more credible mainstream network outlets and newspapers, et cetera. But you could see the way he changed over the course of the 77 minutes why they had him do this. This was sort of a way for President Trump to get his groove back, okay? He's been, he's, he's really struggled and been frustrated in the White House. It's a new environment for him, doesn't know how anything works. The dysfunction is sort of in plain sight for everyone to see. The stories are leaking out, not just the leaks coming from the uh, intelligence community, but leaks from his own staffers about the you know, dysfunction internally. So he was just sort of miserable in there. And this was a way for him to do something that really makes him feel good. This weekend's upcoming rallies are another opportunity to put him in front of the crowd, to bathe him in adulation, and to sort of you know, gratify the ego. And that ultimately is what this was, is as an exercise for Trump to stand there behind a podium, to engage with a lot of reporters who asked the tough questions he'd been avoiding, and he didn't really have any answers. He passed the buck on everything, but it was a way for him to stand up there and engage and look powerful and go toe-to-toe with these reporters and to kind of feel the joy and the, the adrenaline and the energy that he draws from fighting, from combat, from, from going back and forth, from belittling reporters, from telling the media that, hey, this is why people don't trust you. It was one of these things where it was like very reminiscent of the kind of person that we saw on the stump throughout the campaign. It's what makes him happy, and I think that was a big reason they needed to just do it. And it's part of a, the media strategy he used during the campaign as well, right, Eliana? He needs it's a the, foil. Yeah. I think Trump, he said that he enjoys the back and forth and that he has all his life. I think that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, he he does best when he is um, squaring off against somebody else. So, um, you know, it was Little Marco and Lion Ted and Crooked Hillary. And he brought up Hillary uh, again during this press conference. And... Um, 
you know, now without an opposing candidate, he, I think, really likes to put the media in that place. Um, obviously, Steve Bannon has said this, but he does like squaring off um, with the press and I think gets energy from it, um, both from the, the act of it and from demonizing the, the press. I think that the point is really important. And looking through the polling right now that's out there, and again, not that, not that President Trump trusts it, but even the polls that show Trump uh, above water in his approval ratings, uh, which not as many do, but some of them do show him with more people approving than disapproving. The when they break it down into strongly approve and strongly disapprove, the the strongly disapprove massively outnumbers at this point uh, in most polls, and even and marginally outweighs even in ones where he's more popular. Marginally outweighs the people who are strongly approving. So the the you know quote unquote resistance. Is a lot. You can see it's a lot more energized right now, and these. And so you can see why he would feel the need to. Why he does feel the need to kind of retake control of this. So Nancy, let's rewind to the beginning of the week. Now, uh, we talk about him trying to retake control at this press conference. So we just talked about Michael Flynn. Tell us about Andy Puzder, the former labor secretary designee who who pulled out earlier this week, and how this happened. Sure. So basically, um, Pudster, there was have been questions about him sort of from the beginning. He uh, ran this huge uh, franchise, CKE, which is sort of a burger series of burger joints. And there was a lot of problems with his nomination. He had his hearing rescheduled four times. There was a lot of problems with his uh, financial disclosures and ethics paperwork. And then there were just a bunch of controversies that came up that would have individually dogged past nominees. He had uh, a household worker. He didn't pay taxes on her. That's like a big deal if you're going to be the labor secretary. He there was allegations for a president who <laughs> says he wants to crack down on illegal immigration. Of course, there was a lot of allegations that he uh, abused his ex-wife, and there was she even went on Oprah. One of our colleagues, Marianne Levine, wrote a number of stories about this. She went on Oprah in a disguise and talked about this, and that tape surfaced this week. Um, and so there were just a ton. And there was oh, also he was mentored by um, a mob boss at one point earlier in his career. So any number of these things would have been a career killer, but all of them adding up just really was a huge issue. But I think what really brought him down, and Eliana can talk about this as well, is that you know it wasn't even the business leaders weren't even totally behind him, and neither were the conservatives. And there were a lot of conservatives who did not like his pro-immigration stance. The National Review wrote an op-ed the day before his hearing and the day the same day that he withdrew, sort of saying that Republicans didn't have to vote for him. And I think all these things really added up. And at one point Wednesday, there were 12 senators, Republicans, who were potentially saying they couldn't vote for him. And that's when it became really apparent that this was falling apart. Yeah, interestingly, I think that um, Puzder's withdrawal was far more about immigration and his views on immigration as the um, the CEO of CKE. He was an advocate for immigration reform, which was controversial um, amongst Republicans, but it also put him at odds with Trump's views on this. Um, and then he had this issue with this household worker um, who – do you guys know if was it an illegal worker? Yes, I think okay. she was undocumented. So, um, which I I think sort of demonstrated how his his personal behavior what reflected his his uh, broader views um, on that and put him out of step um, with Trump in an administration um, that essentially was elected in an outcry against. Um, you know the Gang of Eight style legislation and National Review's uh, editorial. Uh, published yesterday morning, 
I think, gave Republican senators cover to come out and, uh, and oppose somebody who also had these distracting personal uh, problems. So I, I do think that the, the Oprah tape was the last straw, but there was certainly a lot of buildup um, and resistance ideologically um, to Puzder and that he was considered an odd choice by uh, sort of orthodox conservatives. That's really interesting because, you know, the grassroots left is claiming the, the his downfall as a victory, right, of their, their strategy of resistance and, you know, as a victory for Democratic senators. He, he was an opponent of the minimum wage, um, which I think made him an easy target for Democrats. But I've made this point all along, which was that the person who is going to fall, the the um, the one of these cabinet secretaries, you know, was always likely to fall. And the person who it was going to be was somebody who didn't have enthusiastic support among rank and file Republicans. And that was likely to be somebody who was connected to Trump, but not necessarily to Republican senators. It wasn't going to be Jeff Sessions. Um, it wasn't going to be Mike Pompeo, people who have a lot of friends and allies in Congress. It had to be an outsider who um, there, I don't think there was going to be tremendous resistance among uh, senators, congressmen to, to dropping. But I think part of this, is the timing of this because there were questions about Rex Tillerson too. He was not a guy with a ton of friends in Congress, um, you know, who had worked with him before, but he got through. We're now three, almost four weeks into this administration and Republicans are sitting on Capitol Hill and they're looking at this White House that isn't really helping them with much air cover to defend these nominees, that's putting them under the gun, every reporter, you know, chasing them around, asking them to comment on the most controversial things coming out of the White House, and they're tired of it. So the amount of political capital that the Trump White House has on the Hill has eroded in just a few weeks that they've been in office. And that is also a reason why, at the end of the day, a lot of these Republican members broke off. I mean, everything Eliana just said is exactly right about the lack of broad support with the rank and file. But there's also has been a desire among Republicans and, and a, an ability that Mitch McConnell has had to hold his caucus together and to keep the votes there to satisfy this White House. And Puzzler falling shows that that has broken a little bit. Well, and also just back to what Eli said, I mean, the Republicans on the Hill also just aren't getting what they want. You know, they want to repeal Obamacare quickly. They want there to be tax reform. And all of these policy things that they were so psyched about, about having a Republican-controlled Congress and White House just aren't happening because it's scandal after scandal. And it wasn't just the Pudster and Flynn um you know, resignations or withdrawals of their uh, nominations this week. It was also questions about how Trump was handling national security situations over at Mar-a-Lago at the open air dinner. Uh, you know, what are the administration's ties to Russia? I mean, this has been like over a span of five days. There's just been a tremendous amount of negative headlines for this. And I think that's what this whole press conference was about today. You know, just whenever there's something bad happening or a bad week for them, Trump likes to reset with a press conference. And he did this with the Neil Gorsuch nomination as well as sort of a distraction from the uh, fallout from the travel ban. And that's what this looked like today. So here's the question I've been wondering. I've been doing a lot of reading of old newspaper clippings over the last few weeks about presidential missteps at the beginning of administrations. And we talked last week about how the beginning of the Clinton administration seemed like it was particularly rocky. And is this, does this stuff always happen? And, and, you know, there's a path here for the Trump administration to recover? Or is this supposed to be the easy stuff? And the fact that they're getting bogged down in it bodes ill for everything that comes after. Uh, it depends what you mean by this. I mean, do, do administrations... Oh, I guess like the, the cabinet... Right, right. I mean, the, I think that the scope of this insanity is different 
Okay, we've seen administrations lose cabinet appointees before. That is pretty much a given, right? Some, something's going to happen. We've seen uh, learning curves sort of, you know, stymie incoming administration because they don't realize just how steep that curve is going to be. But this is altogether, I mean, when you add on top of this the, the, the amount of backbiting coming from the, the West Wing, the, the aura of scandal, and it's not just, there are real scandals here, given that the reporting that is going on related to the administration's possible ties and contact with Russia. I mean, Russia is being investigated right now because the, the intelligence community believes that Russia basically did everything they could to influence the election to get Trump elected. So the question of Trump campaign officials potentially, or well, according to the CIA, actually making contact with Russian officials during the campaign is a pretty serious thing. Uh, Eliana's talked about this too. I, I, I heard you talking about it on TV the other night, but this idea of a quid pro quo, I mean, that's the question that that is, I mean, that is not normal to have those kinds of questions surrounding a new administration. Uh, and, and even though he's able to deflect and parry uh, with reporters in the press conference today, none of those questions were answered at this press conference. You know, I think it's amazing that um, the withdrawal of uh, Puzder's nomination yesterday, it was like the bottom story of the day. Um, so I think that, you know, it was not it was not leading the news last night. It was it was on the back end of, of evening news. Broadcast. So was the Israeli prime right. minister at the it, White House. Yep, it was like it, a nothing yep. story. So I think that that suggests, you know, I remember in the beginning of the Obama administration when Tom Daschle went down, that was a huge story. It led the newscast um, We're I think we're we are in, uh, in different ter- territory now. And um, but going back to Nancy's point, Tom Daschle, there's an interesting argument to be made, right, that Tom Daschle not becoming Health and Human Services Secretary ended up having a really long tail effect, right, on healthcare reform. And Nancy, you were just saying all this stuff is kind of sapping the ability of Republicans on the Hill to move forward on some of their priorities and some of the Trump administration's legislative priorities, which is when things start to get really messy typically, right? Well, I just thought there was the most amazing quote in this Wall Street Journal piece today where Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, just said sort of, you know, in this wry way that he does that, you know, he thinks that uh, fewer tweets on a daily basis would be useful. Uh, useful. Useful. <laughs> something along those lines, you know, just a suggestion. And so I think that's like his subtle message to Trump, like, you know what, let's stop with all this showman stuff and let's start to get down to what we want to do. Because I do think that if the Republicans on the Hill don't get some of what they want out of this relationship and if they have to keep defending these things from Trump and, you know, having to tell their constituents, oh, no, we're not going to investigate the ties to Russia or no, they're not that big of a deal. You know, they're going to get tired of it at some point. And they may have to spend time investigating this administration. We've heard this week that there may be multiple investigations coming out of a Republican-led Congress related to Kellyanne Conway, you know, shilling for Ivanka Trump's shoes or bracelets or whatever, and the the ethics office having to look into that. I mean, you know, you go down the line. The Russia stuff is, is obviously the biggest, but I think what what is different about this moment than the sort of you know tumult that we see around a new White House trying to sort of get its footing is that there's this sense that the country could be closer to a constitutional crisis than just you know an administration that is sort of just having a hard time figuring things out. I mean, you have a new administration that is really at war not just with the media but with the courts, 
Trump said during the press conference, oh, we just got a bad court. He's tweeted. He's attacked the courts. He's undermined the judiciary at a time when he's trying to get a Supreme Court nominee confirmed. You have him attacking Congress. You have him angry with Republicans in Congress as well as Democrats. I mean, every sort of pillar of our sort of divided government system here is under attack from the West Wing of the White House. And the White House is mired in controversy. So I think the White House is also at war with itself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> One of the problems. Yeah. So, I mean, that is, it's just, it, it seems more uh, serious, I would say, than, um, you know, the, the sort of stumbles and controversies of a new White House that doesn't really know what it's doing yet. Also, Bill Clinton's administration, you know, he had, they had problems in that, you know, he appointed one of his old childhood friends and Arkansas friends to be his first chief of staff, and that was pretty ineffective originally. And obviously, they ran into some policy roadblocks, like the first lady, Hillary Clinton, doing health care reform in the first year or so. But, um, you know, it was, those were some early sort of personnel and policy missteps. I feel like the Russia stuff and uh, just the general chaos and backbiting in the West Wing is is quite different. Well, and I think Let's, that just one thing about that before we wrap this up, I think, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And that's why you see so much backbiting and blame, because they're clearly screwing a lot of things up and, you know, trying to figure out whose fault it is. But, you know, systemically in the West Wing, Steve Bannon, he's a, you know, propagandist filmmaker. I mean, Reince Priebus was a party fundraiser. You know, Jared Kushner was running a media real estate empire in New York, and we all know Donald Trump wasn't really in politics. He's just reading the paper like everybody else and developing his opinions. None of these people have ever run anything this big before and have very little experience and and don't trust people who do have the experience to come in. I mean, there's an A-list of people in Washington who should be working in this White House. The fact that they're not there, that they don't want to be involved, tells you everything about where we are. All right, let's shift gears a little bit for our final segment of the week. Our third data point is the number 447, and that's the number of votes at stake uh, in the race for Democratic National Committee chair. Those are the number of voting members who could gather in Atlanta in a little over a week to decide who you know the, the uh, figurehead of the Democratic Party is going to be for the next few years. And we've got some new guests on the show to talk us through it. Gabe DiBenedetti, uh, national political reporter. Hey, Scott. And Daniel Strauss, another one of our... Uh, Hotshot Political Reporters, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, so Gabe, let's start. Just where do we stand going into this race? You know, we've got the party in exile, and uh, they're meeting in Atlanta coming up, and there's a whole bunch of different candidates running. So what's the situation? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we've basically had a bunch of these candidates running for two or three months now, but what, the way that the race is shaken out is that there appear to be two clear front runners. That's uh, Tom Perez. He's this progressive uh, former Obama administration official. He was a uh, secretary of labor, then a big Hillary Clinton supporter. He's running and he seems to be the front runner. But there's also Congressman Keith Ellison, Minnesota Congressman, big Bernie Sanders surrogate, uh, was the early favorite here. It's pretty clear that these two are the guys to beat at this point. But what we're looking for at this point is that there are also a lot of other people running. And the most credible challengers include, you know, the New Hampshire Democratic Party chairman, like Ray Buckley, South Carolina Democratic Party chairman, Jamie Harrison, other people like this who have sort of jumped in. Um, and the reason that this is interesting and the reason that we have to pay attention to these other folks is basically that since there are only 447 people who can vote on this thing uh, and 10 candidates, uh, some of whom are vastly more fringe than others, uh, you have to have a majority of the people who actually show up to win. And it doesn't look likely that any, any one of these people is going to get to So we're talking multiple ballots. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So what we're likely to see is some of these folks uh, basically getting 
uh, voting members to say, well, I'm going to vote for, you know, Jamie in the first ballot, but then I'm going to vote for Tom in the second ballot. So, you know, the big fear trading. Well, so there's a lot of horse trading. That's where we are right now. Uh, And there's a big fear that this is going to turn into a big, messy fight if the horse trading is not clean and if it's not, uh, you know, figured out ahead of time. So, Daniel, walk us through a little bit. Where are uh, the, the main candidates and then also some of the um, some of the ones who are running a little further behind, where are they drawing their support from at this point? So it's it's really sort of a tribal situation here. We have Tom Perez, who uh, has close ties to former Obama cabinet secretaries and governors. He was even rumored to be looking at running for governor of Maryland, and he's drawn a lot of big-name support there. And then on Ellison's side, he has this sort of amorphous group of former supporters of Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, our revolution outside group, uh, and some big names in congressional leadership. People like Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren are also backing him. Uh, and he got that support early on. It's a little unclear if they would would have supported him given how the field shaped after he jumped in. And then you have uh, sort of a plethora of other figures backing some of the lesser known candidates. Pete Buttigieg has some mayors backing him and also in the past few days he's gotten support of uh, former DNC chairs from like the 90s and 80s. People uh, I don't think anybody really remembers outside the party. But the thing is, that doesn't matter because DNC members remember some of these guys. It's still unclear how uh, influential the support of like Ed Rendell will be to uh, large groups of voting DNC members. Yeah, that's something I found really interesting looking back at past uh, races for party chair. You know, you look back at, say, 2005, the last time Democrats were in this situation without the presidency, and you had Harry Reid, the Senate leader, and Nancy Pelosi, the House Democratic leader, endorsing Donnie Fowler, who went on to lose. And, you know, it, it really speaks to how closed a process this is, that it's the it's this, this group, it's not voters, it's not, you know, rank and file party members, yeah. it's uh, this group of party officials and I mean, Gabe tell us a yeah. little more about just who these people are well that's that's exactly right these are these are state level activists in, in a lot of uh, in a lot of cases these are people who are either local officials or you know just got, have gotten involved with the Democratic Party on the ground level there but what we're seeing overall is this weird situation, much like 2004, but even more pronounced, uh, where there is a national debate going on about where the party needs to be going. And that seems to be the debate that these people are having in public, these candidates are having. What you know, who, do, what kind of voters do we need to be pursuing? Is it all Russia's fault that we lost the election in the first place? But the reality is that that's not what the campaign really is, because the campaign is really them talking to these 447 voters behind closed doors to promise them, you know, more money for their state party. So these folks are all going on TV. They're all trying to raise their profile. They're all talking to reporters. But the reality is that uh, that's just, you know, a way to get people excited, to get people interested. At the end of the day, they're really just trying to target to these this tiny, small group of people who all have their own interests. I mean, if you are a voting member from Montana, what you want to hear is what the rural strategy is and how much money the Montana State Party is going to get. You couldn't care less, uh, you know, except for uh, for broader reasons, you know, uh, about what this, you know, what Tom Perez has to say on MSNBC on any given day. Here's a crazy thing, though. Like, uh, 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 Martin O'Malley didn't do very well in the last presidential race, has very little 
uh, 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 sort of national following, but he's really influential among some DNC members. Really? Yeah. Believe it or not, he's, he commands a lot of respect from some of these guys. And that might just be like the highest level of party insiderness, but it's a different playing field uh, between sort of running a national campaign for high office and running for DNC chair. And that exact dynamic and ones like that is exactly why it's been so hard to really get a good sense of what's going on in this race. There's no real polling of what's going on. There are only a few members. They're very secretive. And all these people have an incentive to not tell us what they're thinking. Because as long as they can hold out, you know, the better for them. So what does the actual process of campaigning for this look like? I mean, it's the same word we use for people running for Congress, or people running a presidential campaign, but with such a small insidery and also geographically diffuse electorate, the obviously the process of getting these votes is a lot different than uh, than what you might expect. These, right, these people are literally living in planes, and at this point they have pretty good status, but they're making sure to sit in coach just in case <laughs> they're seen. I've heard stories about that specific thing happening. I mean, these people are living on airplanes, going to meetings just outside of the airports in all of these states, especially right now, the folks who have enough money, and Daniel has written about how they have to raise a lot of money to even do this, just because you gotta get on a plane and meet with people in California, in Kansas. Uh, the, the fact that there are only 400 or so people that are voting on this thing, uh, it means that all of these people demand, you know, personal attention. So they're having these private meetings. They're getting promises. Yeah. I mean, think of it. It's less really like running for uh, Congress and more like running for a leadership spot in Congress. Or right? student council. Or student council. Yeah. Right. The joke oh, like is that. Yeah. Uh, that this is a student council. Slightly race. bigger budget, though, right? right. So well, it's tell a, us about that, Daniel. <laughs> so... Uh, like we're we're looking at a surprisingly high amount of money required to run. Uh, we crunched some numbers. We asked asked these campaigns, and we asked former DNC chair candidates. And the cost of entry, the the cost to ride, is about a hundred thousand dollars. And Ellison and Perez are looking at budgets uh, way above that. We're talking closer to a million dollars, six hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand dollars. The question is, what they're going to do with the money after? This race is over. Um, Ellison is using his uh, congressional committee to run, but uh, other people have set up 527s. Mm-hmm. Which allow you to raise unlimited money, although Perez has put a cap on the right. donations that he's accepting, right? Right, right. So, in sort of it, to seem above sort of corruption from lobbyists. But, right. but the reality is that all of these people have big campaign teams, either in D.C. or wherever they're based, that are making calls constantly to these people. I mean, we may not know about it. Well, we know about it, but you know, folks out in the country may not know about it, but there are... 20 or 30 people working for some of these folks. Uh, and this is really only a two-month campaign. Yeah, these are people with titles like campaign manager, chief strategist, communications director, and it's a student council election. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I love that metaphor. Um, now, But how much, how much of the, in, in some sense, part of the reason this grows into such a big spectacle is because the act of running for chair says something about how you would perform in the role, right? A little bit differently, maybe, than a campaign for, for president where we've seen good campaigners who are not very good at governing or, or for Congress, you know, where people campaign and govern very differently. Whereas 
the the act of running a campaign machinery is is somewhat similar to running a national party committee, right? At least in theory, that's the case. I mean, what we're looking at now is a situation where you have pretty different messages coming from some of these folks. They're very clear not to disagree with each other on the big issues. But when you look at someone like Buckley or Harrison, who are state party chairs, what they're saying is, don't just look at my campaign, look at what I've done for the last X number of years, I've run a party mechanism. That's what it means to run the the national uh, the national committee. But what you're looking at when you talk to someone like Perez or Ellison, who are more traditional politicians, is they are trying to have a broader debate about what the future of the party should be. Now, Democrats haven't had mechanics versus inspiration. Exactly right, and mechanics don't tend to win races like that. You know, you brought up earlier before we started recording uh, uh, the Republican race from a few years back, and basically what happened then. This was when Michael Steele won in two thousand nine. This is right after the big Obama victory, the massive majorities. The parallels are quite clear. Basically, Republicans decided we need to have a broad rethink of what our party does who's in charge of our party, and Michael Steele was seen as a fresh new face. Now, his tenure was not seen as particularly successful, and Reince Priebus ended up taking over as the boring management man who just can get this party back on track. And that is more or less, they won't say his name, and they won't say it explicitly, but that is kind of the pitch that we're hearing from some of these state party folks, because what they're saying is, listen, the actual work of the Democratic National Committee is not to be the face of the party. It's to make sure that the voter file is running, to make sure that we have enough money to get this stuff going. It's such an interesting point. And I mean, the thing the thing is, though, that uh, Reince Priebus was able to win the Republican National Committee chairmanship in 2011 after the party had just won a smashing midterm victory, right? And so they weren't as concerned with uh, needing to broaden that tent because they had just gotten validation from the electorate and he was able to run on that kind of managerial platform. And not only that, but no one was ever under the impression that Ryan's Priebus was going to be the face of the party and that Tom Perez and Keith Ellison are competing to be the face of the party. That's why they're going on TV. There's a definite emphasis on sort of a face of the party in this election cycle or or for uh, DNC chair this time around. Uh, And the thing is, uh, like Gabe said, both Harrison and Buckley have these records of running state parties, and they try and highlight that, especially Buckley, a lot. But every indicator we've seen is that uh, DNC members aren't as interested in that as wondering whether they should elect someone who hails from sort of the Bernie wing of the party or the more Obama establishment wing. Uh, and uh, that's w- the associations that both Ellison's team and Perez's team haven't really shied away from. It's a lot to chew on. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about it all again next week, probably just with a little (laughs) different spin on it. Uh, Thank you all for... See you in seven days. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Again, remember, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you have time, write a written review. Our email is nerdcast at politico.com. And of course, as always, a big thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you guys in a week.